conflict, climate, and the economic consequences of COVID-19 are feeding off each other in a vicious cycle. With 54 conflicts, 100 million displaced people, and 345 million people going to bed hungry every night. This was the stark picture painted by the president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, David Miliband, who advocates for solutions to these challenges rather than just talking about suffering. However, he's also concerned about the lack of adequate funding to support the most vulnerable in the world, in addition to the impact that the Ukraine war will have not only on Ukrainians, but people around the world directly and indirectly. I'm Ina Al-Rabi, Editor-in-Chief of The National. And for this week's episode of Beyond the Headlines, I sat down for an exclusive interview with David Miliband to discuss humanitarian aid, global politics, and his own political future. David, thank you so much for making the time to speak to The National. Mina, always pleased to speak to you and happy to speak to The National. Thank you. I wanted to start by asking you to give us a general picture of the humanitarian situation globally. Um, we're emerging from COVID-19. We are looking towards a global recession. There's definitely a global um, downturn, but there's also a series of forgotten crises. Yeah, I think that your readers and listeners should have three numbers in their head. 54 is the number of civil wars, civil conflicts going on around the world at the moment. About eight of them are large scale with more than 1,000 people uh, killed on the battlefield, but a lot of low-level conflict. And then you've got Ukraine on top. So there's a lot of conflict. That's leading to the fact that we've now got a second number I want them to remember, 100 million. That's the number of people displaced from their homes by conflict and disaster because of the conflict and climate mix. 55 million people displaced internally within their own countries. You know that from the Syrian example. And 45 million crossing borders as refugees and asylum seekers. Again, Syria would be the leading example in the Middle East, but around the world, Afghanistan, two and a half million Afghans are in Pakistan. Uh, Rohingya, a million driven into Bangladesh. So there's 45 million refugees. And the third number, almost the most chilling, 345 million people tonight will go to bed hungry at the UN classification of three or four in the food classification index, five being famine. And we face the threat of real famine in Somalia, in parts of Ethiopia, Kenya, maybe even Yemen and uh, Afghanistan will come and talk about those. So the humanitarian situation is that more people than ever are dependent on humanitarian aid. More people than ever are being driven from their homes as refugees. More conflicts are continuing for long duration, which explains why refugees are out of their own homes for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And that is what is creating this humanitarian hiatus at a time when global politics is in a mess, uh, there's gridlock in all sorts of international institutions, and people on the edge feel that they're being pushed very close to the precipice. And what you've outlined there, as you said, is in large part due to protracted conflicts. And then you have new conflicts that then change the dynamic, change the geopolitical dynamic, but also the focus and the attention, because there's only so much attention that the world apparently can give to certain crises. In December 2021, when you released your emergency watch list of crises, Ukraine was not on there. We could not imagine what this year would be like. And Ukraine, of course, now has had a major impact, first of all, on the poor Ukrainians that are suffering through war, but also on Europe and the wider world. Um, to what extent is the Ukrainian crisis looking like it could become a protracted one? But also, to what extent is it 
taking away attention and resources from the other crises that we're facing. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So first, you're right that we've got a confluence of protracted long-term crises and recent acute crises piled on top. Secondly, we've got a mix of humanitarian need that festers, but also global politics that's gone wrong and is blocking solutions. Thirdly, I'm glad you mentioned our emergency watch list. This is an annual publication based on 70 to 80 different indicators of humanitarian need, where we rank the 20 countries most at risk of humanitarian uh, disaster over the forthcoming year. We've got our next one coming out in middle of December, so in uh, five or six weeks' time. We did miss Ukraine last year, and we kick ourselves uh, for that, but it, it, it didn't appear in our data sets. It seemed outlandish. Uh, that in November, December last year, uh, a permanent member of the Security Council should invade its neighbour without any provocation. So that interplay of humanitarian need and gridlocked global politics is a very big part of this. But I think there's also another element, which is that conflict and climate and the economic consequences of COVID, they feed off each other Mm. in this vicious circle, if you like, that is so... Uh, dangerous. Now, Ukraine only adds to the mix. And obviously, you're right that the Ukrainians are the biggest victims of the war in Ukraine. And it's going to be a brutal winter in Ukraine. 40% of the electricity supply has been damaged. But we're all victims of the war in Ukraine, indirectly, if not just directly. What's the indirect cost of the war in Ukraine? Well, it's felt by food prices, around the world. It's felt by energy prices around the world. It's felt also by real global political tension that arises from the Ukraine crisis. It's both a symptom of political breakdown and a cause of further breakdown. People having to really think hard uh, about the, the consequences for global institutions on which the poorest people in the world depend. We're about to go into a climate conference We've got a G20 uh, meeting. There's a real sense that global politics has broken down because of uh, the Ukraine crisis. And my concern as someone who's running a humanitarian organization is that those least able to fend for themselves, those least able to support themselves, are the greatest victims of the failure of global politics. So I think this Ukraine crisis is a real moment of reckoning, not just for Europeans. Um, It's a moment of reckoning globally. What does that involve? Well, I'm very concerned at the diversion of aid from the Middle East, from parts of Africa into Ukraine. Yes, the needs in Ukraine are real, but we can't have first-class aid in Ukraine and second or third-class aid elsewhere. Um, It's a very important part of our work at the International Rescue Committee saying, don't forget the Somalias of this world. Don't forget the Syrias of this world. Don't forget the Afghanistans of this uh, world. Of course, that doesn't mean we should forget about Ukraine either, but it's the global humanitarian tragedy is not just a Ukraine tragedy. It's, it's, it's a global one. And it would be, it's a double whammy if the poorest people in other parts of the world pay the greatest price uh, for Ukraine. But I think there's a second element of this too. Ukraine is a wake-up call. We can either have a world based on rules or we can have a world based on impunity. Impunity is crimes without punishment, power without accountability. And a world without rules is a very dangerous world for all of us. It's just like, imagine if there was no traffic lights on the roads outside of the UAE. It'd be a disaster. We can't have a world without traffic lights. We need a world with rules, with traffic rules, with driving rules, with traffic lights.
there are those of us in the Middle East who feel that the rules were already not being applied fairly, um, be it Palestine, be it the invasion of Iraq in 2003, be it Syria. And, you know, some of the tactics we're seeing in, in Ukraine were actually used in Syria. Yeah. And so I think there's a sense of, just as you said, you can't have first-class humanitarian aid and second-class humanitarian aid. You also can't have first-class rules when the war is in Europe and second-class rules when totally. the wars are in the Middle East. Totally. So how, how does the international system kind of rectify that and, and earn back the trust of people globally because they feel that impunity is not just when it comes to Ukraine but the wider, wider world? Well, I think, first of all, you're, you're, you're right to use um, the the lens of earn, you use the word earn. Trust has to be earned. And I think that's a very important warning to Western democratic countries that they've got to live by their values at home and not just profess them abroad. But there's a second point I'd make. Beware whataboutery. Beware the whatabout that somehow excuses one sin by pointing to another. And I think that's really important. It, it should be chilling that 40% of the world's population are represented by countries which couldn't come to a view about whether or not to condemn the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. It's not about being anti this or pro the other. It's just about whether or not you stand up for the international rule of law. And just as I think it's brutally wrong for aid workers or civilians to be targeted in conflict, so it's wrong for one country to invade another. Mm. Um, uh, invade its neighbor. And that, in defiance of international rules about sovereignty and territorial integrity. And so I think it's very important to me as someone who's dependent on global politics. I used to be involved in politics. Now I'm dependent on global politics when I'm running a humanitarian agency. It depends on aid workers not being fired at. And we've got too many tragic examples of our own staff and others being targeted because they're aid workers. Uh, not because they're dealing in politics, but they're actually just trying to meet humanitarian need. And of course, the vast majority of the people who we employ are local people. Mm. So in Afghanistan, it's Afghans who work for the IRC. In Syria, it's Syrians who work for the IRC. And so I think it's really important that you call out the double standards and without fear or favor, say, well, no, the, 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 this should not stand. And I think that um, whatever the, uh, um, wherever that takes you, wherever the truth takes you, it's important to go there. And uh, I've been very critical of, you know, we're headquartered in the US, we're a global organization. I've been critical of the US government, for example, in respect of Afghanistan and what's happened there. I'm deeply impressed that the US system and the, the, peop the policies that we're criticizing, those people who are, who are running that administration, they don't say, well, we're not going to talk to you because you've criticized us. They actually say, come and talk to us because we want to understand your point of view. That's impressive to me. But I also want to call out from my own organization, we make sure that the fact that a government gives us money doesn't mean we don't criticize them. I, I, want, to, I want to shift gears to the refugee situation, um, because as you said, you have 100 million uh, displaced and, uh, you know, between internally and externally. But... You know, the, the, the U.S. is now welcoming more refugees. We had a, a moment in time politically that was um, not favorable. But you also have places in Europe that are closing their doors. 
And so my question to you is, is to what extent is polarization in politics impacting the refugee situation? But also what more can be done? Yeah. So the refugee crisis is never going to be fixed by saying every refugee has got to end up in America or Western Europe. The question is, do America and Western Europe take a fair share? Mm. And the UN says for the 8% most vulnerable refugees in the world, they need to be moved to a third country. They may be victims of torture. They may have special medical needs. They may be orphaned kids. And um, you can do the maths about 8% of 45 million refugees around the world. We're nowhere near meeting that. I think it's very impressive the Biden administration should be saying it's 125,000 is our annual commitment of solidarity with what is frankly the countries in the world that are bearing the greatest responsibility for refugees is not rich countries. Right. It's the Lebanons, the Jordans of this world. It's the Ugandas of this world. It's the Bangladeshis of this world. If you, if you read the UK media at the moment, you think it was the UK that was taking more refugees than anyone else. I, mean, I don't need to tell you, it's not. And I think it's very important that the US does right by its own commitment to welcome refugees. Um, it's historically been bipartisan. Ronald Reagan welcomed more refugees to America than any other president, and he was not a left-wing uh, president. But that is not, quote-unquote, the answer to the refugee crisis, because most refugees, their greatest dream is to go home. And so they don't want to travel to the other side of the world. They actually want to stay close. And that requires two things. One, diplomacy that allows them to go home. Very few are able to do so because conflict continues. You know that from the Syrian um, example. But secondly real support for the countries that are hosting the refugees. So the Jordans and the Lebanons of this world, they are doing a global public service by hosting refugees. But they don't get much credit for it globally. Our argument with the World Bank, with the IMF, with the international donors is, if you don't help the countries that are supporting refugees, and by the way, that means supporting the host communities, because Jordan's unemployment rate is 26% uh, for the host population. You've got to support the host population and the refugee population. And I'm really proud that the IRC's programs, they help host population as well. If I take you to one of our livelihood centers in Lebanon, it's helping Lebanese as well as uh, Syrians. And that's really important. So the, the, the global response isn't just about resettlement of the 8%. It's about support for the countries that are hosting those refugees and delivering on that global public good. It's it's impressive because you you continue to to repeat about Syria about Afghanistan. Unfortunately, for much of the world, these are becoming forgotten crises. Let alone speaking about Myanmar, the Rohingya uh, suffering there, Nigeria, South Sudan, Somalia. I mean, the list goes on. How do you keep people's focus and support for these crises? How do you maintain it? I think there are two things that are really important. One, make sure that the victims of the Syria crisis, our clients, speak for themselves. It's their voices more powerful than mine in saying, don't forget about this crisis. When my bakery was bombed in Damascus or when my house was shelled in Aleppo four, six, eight, ten years ago, don't forget about me now. And that's really important. And I may now be in Jordan, I may be in Lebanon, I may be in Germany, but I haven't forgotten Syria. So I think that's a really important part of the responsibility. Secondly, and this is a harder message, the, the plea not to forget us can't just go to the West. There are responsibilities on all those with wealth, and there are people in this region, and there are countries in this region that have wealth. And so I think there are global responsibilities that come with power and with wealth. And part of my appeal whenever I come to the Gulf is 
this is a, a region that is remarkable for its ambition. The Gulf is a... Just look around us. What's, what's happened in the last few... I went to the Museum of the Future yesterday in, uh, in Dubai. It's a country, the UAE, that's thinking how far it's come in 50 years, but what's going to happen in the next 50? Uh, so the ambition is extraordinary, but the compassion is an important part of the culture too. And so don't forget, is yes, a message that the International Rescue Committee has to take to its traditional Western donors. It also has to take to governments and to the private sector, to philanthropists and to businesses in the Gulf, because they, we need to be partnering with them too. And it's always interesting because here, you know, you, you find out about programs they support, like Reach the Last Mile and trying to end malaria, which you wouldn't think the UAE would be involved in, in uh, charities or support of groups like that. Ordinarily, you don't really hear about it. So I think part of it is also getting the message out there, communication, and also saying that compassion needs to extend even further. So yeah, it's, and it's, it's obviously for message. Muslim communities around the world, but it's an important point. Non-Muslim communities as well. And we are a secular humanitarian agency. We were founded by Einstein, Jewish man, refugee, but we weren't set up only to help Jews. Half of our work is now in Muslim-majority countries because we're a secular organization. And I think that's a very important principle as well because, I mean, the world's doomed if we only help one religion and not help people because of their humanity. The, the assertion of common humanity is what the humanitarian movement is all about. Humanitarianism, when we think about Afghanistan, uh, those scenes, I think, will be seared in everyone's uh, memories of what the, the U.S. pullout looked like and, and the NATO pullout looked like, but also the fact that the situation inside of Afghanistan due to poverty is, is terrible. Well, due to economics. Economics. And so how, how would you go about dealing with that at a time when there is still concern about working directly with the current yeah. government uh, led by the Taliban there? Well, there's a very important principle here. Work through civil society. You know, if you want to build a nation, you have to build it from the grassroots. If you want to support people, then support people. And we now have expanded our work in Afghanistan in the last year. A year ago, if I'd been here, I'd say I'd be proud. We had 1,800 employees in Afghanistan. Now we've got 3,000 employees in Afghanistan in 12 provinces. There are 4,000 more auxiliary workers who depend on our support. 40% of them are women, 44% actually the last time I counted, including in senior positions. And do we talk to the governing authorities? Yes, at national and local level. Do we let them tell us what to do? No. Um, do we work in accordance with local custom? Yes. Um, our, most of our employees, all but six of them, are Afghans. So they're defending their own communities. And I think uh, uh, it's really important to have as seared in our memory the current picture as the picture of last August 2021, because it was a, a disastrous end to the NATO mission, obviously. But the grinding poverty from the macroeconomic pullout that's happened is compounding the pain of 20 or in some ways 40 years of civil war. And so I think that the, the repeated message we're making to the World Bank is pay that Afghan Reconstruction Trust Fund, not to the government, but to teachers and nurses and water engineers. Um, the unfreezing of the assets. I was in Washington last week talking to the Treasury and National Security Council about the importance of getting that Afghan fund, not for humanitarian work, but to, to underpin the banking system. Because you can't have an economy if you haven't got a banking system. And so that economic argument I think is really important. We warned a year ago that if 
military withdrawal was followed by political and economic and humanitarian withdrawal, it would be a disaster for the people. And now 90% plus of the population living grinding poverty. And that's not what the last 20 years have been about. And so I think there's a really important message that the people of Afghanistan who are still there, um, the vast, you know, 38 million people there, 100,000 have left, they need macroeconomic support now. It's interesting to say economics because that feels to be at the crux of what the Syrians are suffering today. You hear Syrians saying that despite the terrible years of war that they went through, economically they're suffering today more than they had been previously. So economic crisis in Syria. Some people say it's time for early recovery. Let's go in there and actually start getting the economy to work again so people can find jobs. What's your take on Syria? Well, my take comes from 1,300 IRC staff who are working in the northwest and the northeast of the country. And we're um, helping, I mean, the northwest is now three and a half million, four million people there, three and a half probably, in the northeast of the country, two and a half million. Um, in the northwest, it's a lot of people who've been driven from other parts of Syria, so a lot of internally displaced people, are so-called IDPs. And so my take is... Um, the conflict's not over for those people. It's not, it's not a frozen conflict. It's not a, steady, it's not a steady state. And the humanitarian needs that I can speak to, including an outbreak of cholera in the northwest of the country, because the uh, people essentially drinking from the Euphrates and uh, deeply uh, uh, polluted. Um, so... I think it's very, it's very important that I just speak to the humanitarian needs that we see. I can't speak to the, the political situation in government-controlled areas because we're not licensed to work there. But what I know is that cross-border aid from Turkey or from Iraq is absolutely essential. Uh, don't just take my word for it. The UN has said the same thing for, for the people there. And in the end, the frozen politics is going to be the binding constraint on this, but for the people, health, education, livelihoods is a clear and present need now. There are, there are obviously needs in government-held areas, but the fact that there's no cross-line support, the UN support that goes into Damascus doesn't find its way to the northwest and the northeast, even though six million Syrians are living there in those two places, that's a very serious issue. Yemen, um, you know, it's, it's, it's uncanny how some of these problems and, and some of the suffering is repeated. You see some of those dynamics in Yemen while each country is different. But in some ways, it's that. It's the frozen politics. We had the truce, which gave us some hope that at least the level of violence can be reduced, but hopefully work towards a political process that can solve the suffering. Um, how do you see Yemen? And how do you, how do you see that kind of, if we can get back to a truce that actually functions, we can help to ease the suffering? Well, it's very, very interesting that in a year, 2022, of many dark spots, Yemen's actually in a better place than it was a year ago. And it's important to understand why. I mean, at some level, the reason's quite simple. The conflict has been haltingly halted, and life has begun to take some form. Now, we need to pile in behind those accelerators of progress and try to mitigate the danger of relapse. And we can do that at the humanitarian level by the work that we do, which is very difficult because of bureaucratic impediments, both in the north and in the south of the country, um, but which depends on politics as well. Now, the UN has played a very important role in helping to foster or broker 
the various agreements that have happened over the last year. Regional players have been important to that, just as they were important to the rise of the conflict. They've been important to the decline of the fighting. And my plea, more than anything else, is that we don't throw it all away. Because it could... Yemen's been traumatized over the last decade. And the people of Yemen have been traumatized. There's still 23 million people there in need of humanitarian assistance. So there's a desperate need that the next year doesn't see a relapse in Yemen. In addition to all these political dynamics, there are greater forces at play, which is, of course, climate. And some of the changes we're seeing are not going to be reversed. And some changes could actually be reversed, be it you know, through tackling desertification, dealing with emissions and so forth. COP27 about to kick off in Egypt, and then we will have yeah. COP28 in the UAE. Yeah. So we actually have two years of focus uh, on, on climate here as we host the two COPs here. Um, what do you anticipate coming from COP27? What do you hope? And what's your message also to the region in thinking about these climate Well, the dynamics? region is a microcosm of the global climate challenge, because this is a region where the balance between energy security on the one hand and wealth, let's be honest about it, on the other, with climate danger is very real. I mean, everyone talks to me about the fact it's, it's still t- it's way too hot and it's November. Mm. And they talked to me yesterday about what it was like in June, July and, and August. So this region is exposed to the climate crisis, um, but it's also dependent on a phased and organized transition. And it's co-dependent with the rest of the world. Now, we're meeting at this COP with America with very significant climate legislation through. Europe, very significant climate legislation through. China, very significant climate legislation through. That's never happened before. That's 60% of uh, global emissions. So the, 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 the transition path to a stable world is beginning to take shape. And the region, through the Egyptian-led COP, and then you're absolutely right, the UAE-led COP in uh, 2023, the region's responsibility is twofold. One, to get its own act together. And so the investment in solar that's going on here is very significant and very important. But it's also got this global responsibility of being a, a good global citizen. And I'm afraid the expectations for the Egypt meeting are very low indeed. People talk about whether it's going to be bad or disastrous. So we, don't, we can't afford the global political standoff to um, torpedo any hopes in uh, And that's because, Egypt. and there's low expectations because of the geopolitical dynamics at play? Yes, and also the COP process didn't get much momentum in Glasgow last year. The sort of, I would say the glass was a quarter full coming out of uh, Glasgow. Um, it takes political heft. As the Paris Agreement showed, it was the, you know, it was the uh, foreign minister of France who, in the end, Laurent Fabius, he, he spent the year really driving the global system towards an agreement. And you had President Obama and then President Hu of uh, China coming together before the Paris meeting. You can't just do it in the week of the of summiteering and photo opportunities. And I think that's the big lesson for the UAE that it's a year's worth of activity, not a week's worth or two weeks worth of activity when when the meeting happens and. I think that out of Glasgow, there were important side agreements on forestry, on methane, um, and agriculture that need to be followed through. And with the election of President Lula in uh, uh, Brazil, there's a chance around forestry that there wasn't under the previous President Bolsonaro. 
So, and the Amazon is a absolutely critical part of this global forestry agreement. But I think that um, there hasn't been much work to, to you, you can't reap from the soil if you don't sow the seeds. And I think that that's why expectations are low. And so I, I think urgency, but also commitment are going to be very important from the UAE leadership as they go forward to this. The global attention is going to be on the UAE, not just for what the UAE does inside the UAE, but for what it brings to global diplomacy. Um, your new emergency watch list for next year will come out next month. So what are we expecting? Um, and how do you, as you look towards 2023, of course, there's the climate agenda, hugely important. And there's also these continuing uh, crises. What do we expect from the Well, we're, we're publishing in six weeks' time, five or six weeks' time. We're just doing the, um, the rigorous data analysis at the moment. I think what we know is that conflict, climate, and COVID, which were the three big drivers of the watch list last year, there's an additional driver this year, which is the economic downturn. And that's how that plays into global humanitarian need is going to affect uh, the, the, the lessons. I, I hope we can really point to clear um, drivers that need attention of humanitarian need, but also solutions. We're a solutions-oriented NGO, not a suffering NGO. Yeah. And people need a view of solutions if they're to do anything. And my message is there are real solutions. If you care about malnutrition, we can actually do something about it. If you care about displacement of people and how they're treated, we can do something about it. We've got some real solutions that we can put into practice. And so what you can expect from the watch list is that we'll follow the science, but also that we'll be about solutions, not just suffering. It's an important distinction, solutions and suffering. There's another important distinction for the organization you lead, which is you're very transparent about how the money you have gets spent. 87% goes directly to your clients and the rest of it will go, of course, to management and you know, general needs to actually run an organization of this size. Um, because there are question marks about the aid community, quite a lot of criticism and cynicism also about how does the money get spent and so forth. How do you tackle that? How do you see that? Well, I think you tackle it through open books. See, even the 13% that you said doesn't go directly to clients, we now spend 3% of our total $1.5 million billion budget on IT, right? That makes us more effective at the front line. You know, you, you want to be, if I told you that we were operating with uh, pen, and, pen and paper uh, with a $1.5 billion organization, you, you'd be a bit worried. So um, transparency, education, explanation is important. And I think that um, it's absolutely right that donors know where their money is going. We also do things that I think um, donors should be pleased about. The biggest testimony is to ask your clients, did they get any benefit? And more and more of our country programs are now, we're really using client feedback because that's the ultimate proof. Final question. Open book. You're an open book on many things, but we're not really sure what your political future will look like. Many people in the UK still question whether David Band will come back for a political comeback. Is that something on well, your mind? Look, that's nice of you to, to say that. It's on your mind, but not on my mind. <laughs> Uh, the um, the important thing, I think, is that I always say to people, I make my professional decisions according to where I think I can make most impact, consistent with my responsibilities to my family, and that remains the case. And I wish I had a, um, a, a sort of uh, timeline where I could say, well, I'm doing this at this point in my life, and I'm, I, whenever anyone asks me for career advice, I say, look, I'm the wrong person to ask because I still haven't figured it out, and I'm 57 now. So 
Um, I think that the, the best answer is to say that I'm, I'm very committed to the work that I'm doing because I think that's where I'm having the greatest impact. But your eyes are still on the UK at one point. I'm a British citizen, so I'm, I'm very proud of being British. I uh, mourn the fact that we've, been, we've humiliated ourselves in the last few years or months. Um, it's not been a good time to be a Brit. We've been the, almost a global laughingstock, but it's not, uh, it, it'd be wrong. That's not quite the right way of putting it. People want the UK to be a source of stability, of pragmatism, of rules, and of strong values. And that's something that, we, that many British people feel. And it's not been good to have been abroad and people saying, well, what's happened to your, your country? You don't, want people, you don't want people saying that. But the country still has strength and it's got to refine them. Thank you very much for your Thank time. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Headlines. This week's episode was produced by Mahmoud Rida, Melangela Gupta, and Arthur Edison. Please subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast providers for our upcoming episodes. 